Welcome to episode 56 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, and now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Michael, uh, you got a candidate for uh, uh, Story of the Week? I think the net neutrality order, which uh, is, you know, given that it, it, well, you can you can talk about it, but I'm going to identify it because otherwise Stuart leaves me with the little the snooze items to identify. It's true. But you know, this is Stuart. I think you'll be happy to 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 know that this will be added to Obama's uh, growing legacy of major achievements since he clearly forced the FCC's hand. Yep, I I, I think he owns it. Uh, we'll see whether we whether we, whether he's happy owning it. Uh, um, well, and uh, as as you heard, uh, Stephanie Roy, a partner in Steptoe's Telecom and Internet and Media Practice, is here in the studio. I uh, uh, and uh, she uh, knows a lot about net neutrality and is going to talk about it in just a second. So welcome, Stephanie. I. Uh, our guest commentator is Siobhan Gorman, director uh, at the Brunswick Group and a former national security correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and before that when I first knew her at the Baltimore Sun. Uh, back when. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. And and really, you've spent all this time beating up the National Security Agency at, in every job except the Brunswick job. Is that right? I wouldn't call it beating up the <laughs> National Security Agency. I would call it uh, government accountability reporting. They, 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 they saw it slightly differently. They but might have. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, and uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS. Uh, and just to change things up, uh, the lawyer uh, at Steptoe who has spent the most time in zero gravity, uh, as you can tell from my LinkedIn photo. Uh, um, let's get started on the news. Uh, uh, and let's jump in on net neutrality because that was the hot topic. Uh, uh, 300-page order, a rumored 200-page dissent from uh, one of the Republican commissioners. None of that is yet public. Uh, uh, all we have is a four-page fact sheet. Is that right? That's right. At this time, they're uh, currently working, I understand, to respond to uh, Commissioner Pye and Commissioner O'Reilly's dissents that are uh, will be accompanying the order. So this is just about everything that everybody expected, right? It, it's going to be Title II, which is, uh, I, I think, actually Verizon uh, issued its response in Morse code saying that was uh, uh, appropriate technology for the time when the law was really originally written. So it, it's going back to the 1934 Act, uh, regulating ISPs as though they are um, common carriers, uh, and then Throwing out those portions of the regular of, of the common carrier law that don't seem appropriate in this context is that right? That's right. It's consistent with the '96 Act, Telecom Act, uh, for the FCC to uh, forbear from unnecessary regulations when it deems it in the public interest to do so. They did this a lot with mobile services, right? Which which say, also were basically Title II, right? Uh, many mobile services are Title II. Some are not. There's a distinction between commercial mobile radio services and private mobile radio services. They are not allowed to regulate private mobile radio services as common carrier services under the 96 Act, actually. But uh, they are allowed to, and they do regulate CMRS uh, as common carriers, and um, they uh, have classified mobile Internet access here as uh, commercial mobile radio service or its functional equivalent, which is the definition. Right. So this is a standard. big expansion of Title II authority. Yeah, it's an expansion from when you look at how the FCC has treated Internet access since the cable modem order back in 2002. For the last 13 years, they've been treating it as 
information and information fully as an information service, no matter, you know, how it might seem to be the functional equivalent of the of the plain old television uh, telephone service that we used to have back in the day in terms of connectivity. Yes, yeah, so twenty first century equivalent, many say, of what the telephone was in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, but I, you know, let, let me ask you what the politics of this is, and and you you can feel free to say you just don't know. But I, when we were going to have uh, uh, Nula O'Connor on, uh, uh, I went back and looked at what the CDT had said about regulating the internet in 1997 and they said oh we don't want to regulate the internet no, go away with that regulating the internet so this was like the ira magaziner and the clinton administration backed by all of the bien pensant um, uh, groups like cdc um and they were all opposed to regulation now you know 15 years later uh, everybody's enthusiastic about it what changed? Well, you have to look at the context in which those statements were made. Back in the 90s, predominantly, Internet access provided over your copper wire twisted pair. And the telco companies were under an obligation um. to provide access. That, the, that transmission service portion of that was regulated as a common carrier services. There was a distinction between basic telecommunication services and enhanced services. So it's when, the move to broadband in, in, in some senses. It's, it's the move to um, the transmission path being under the control, under the proprietary control, and not being made available to third parties like the cable and now the fiber. The fiber isn't treated like the twisted copper pair is. It's treated as a proprietary network of the telco company. Uh, for purposes of everything but basic voice services. So what this means, if I read it right, is if the FCC thinks it's just and reasonable to impose rest- restrictions on the ISPs, they can do it now. They, 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 well, that's I, the standard, right? I think, but the, the Title II um, provisions, and I have to go back and take a careful look, say that the, the Internet, the, the common carrier cannot uh, impose unjust or unreasonable right. practices of discrimination. So it's it's a, it's a bit of a uh, yes. This gives the FCC much more authority over the um, practices of ISPs. I think it's a significant jump to go from there to say that the FCC is going to start taking all these affirmative acts. Well, okay. So uh, to bring this back to sort of cyber law, uh, it, it seems to me that we're talking about cybersecurity. Chairman Wheeler has said. Uh, we expect the ISPs to do a really good job on cybersecurity. We've got the CISRIC group, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security, whatever it is. Uh, uh, and they've just issued a report about the things they're going to do. Uh, and he said, you know, um, I expect you to do that voluntarily. But if you don't, I got options. Um, it seems to me that one of the options now is to say, we think that ISPs have all kinds of security obligations to their customers and to the infrastructure at large. Uh, and uh, the uh, the FCC now has a very big stick to hold over people's head and maybe to use, saying uh, we're going to set a whole bunch of Internet security standards uh, under Title II. I'm not going to say that they don't have that authority under Title II because they do have very uh, – broad-reaching authority over common carriers, even under the scenario where we're talking about in which they've chosen to forbear from many of the regulations. But I can't say that. I think that's a likely near-term 
Oh, I happen. think that's uh, right. They're not going to do it in the next two years. Uh, well. <laughs> I think we can be reasonably sure of that. Uh, but my, it is my prediction that within five years, there will be cybersecurity regulation promulgated under the uh, authority of Title II. Well, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there might be a growth in these types of requirements, uh, just like there were a growth in the late 90s on privacy of consumer information requirements right. and keeping it secure. Of course, the other um, thing that happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s was uh, they imposed CALEA requirements right. uh, on a whole bunch of, of people who thought they were not subject to them using their regulatory authority. Um, and that they could do, too. They could say, well, you're, you should be providing access to the government uh, to these communications uh, uh, because, you know, that's in the interest of law enforcement. I have to take a police <coughs> statute to answer that one. Well, I'm not sure they need the CALEA statute now that they can just decide it's, it's just unreasonable. unreasonable. Uh, they could even, you know, I, I think this is probably a, uh, a fever dream. Usually the more specific rules over the more general. Yeah, but you can imagine them saying um, in carrying out the, um, the FBI's concerns about um, encryption, you know, these people who are completely irresponsible in the encryption they're providing, they should get throttled. Um, and because, you know, they've reserved the idea that you, you can throttle things that are not in, um, in the public interest or not lawful, I guess, right? So there can be some, some thr- uh, throttling, uh, of disfavored providers. Now, now you're saying that, that they can step in and tell, tell an ISP to throttle mm. or simply refuse to take action in the case of... Yeah, refuse them. to carry or to carry only on a limited basis certain kinds of disfavored services? I think they'd have to have a, a, a statutory regulatory basis to act differently in those circumstances. Okay. And uh, we haven't seen that yet. All right. So that the, this is all the can of worms that we've now got in front of us, uh, or if you're the FBI, uh, a set of enormous new opportunities. Yes, Shabon. Well, but it also just speaks to sort of the rather fluid regulatory environment um, that cybersecurity is residing in at this point. Well, I but mean, it, it's, 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 it's been fluid because nobody can get any regulatory uh, provisions passed, and nobody has been enthusiastic about imposing regulations right. across the board. But I do think You'll see agencies over time, um, you know, assuming that you don't see regulations passed by Congress, you'll see some agencies over time looking at whether it's necessary uh, or, or possible to use current authorities in new ways applied to sort of new technologies and new problems. Because I do, you know, just talking talking with people, you know, experts in, in the cyber world who follow this kind of stuff and, and um, folks in the corporate sector who follow regulatory issues, I think that that, that is, that, that's certainly seen as something that could be coming down the line. If you assume there won't be new regulations from Congress, there may be some uh, additional interpretations coming. I, I think for sure that uh, you know the um, the reluctance to regulate here is all among people who are not regulators uh, uh, in the White House uh, at DHS. They're they're just they don't have regulators' DNA. But if you have a regulators' DNA, you're starting the, to get licensed with the NIST, yeah. you know standards. I, I think that's right. In fact, uh, um, Michael, I I think there was a story today where uh, uh, the um, uh, financial industry regulator uh, in uh, uh, New York, uh, Losky, said, uh, uh, yeah, I want to regulate the cybersecurity practices of uh, insurers and financial industry, and I I declared war on the password and a variety of uh, fairly substantive regulatory requirements. 
Yeah, you know, he's been signaling for a while now that he's um, he's going to get very active in, in cybersecurity and, and compliment the New York uh, Attorney General, uh, who has made similar remarks. And, and the latest uh, uh, speech by Lossky, uh basically said he's considering requiring multi-factor authentication, which federal regulars have not gone so far as to require. They've, they've been urging it, but they haven't required it if banks have an alternate uh, uh, and comparable method for security. So I, I think this this void at the federal level uh, is just fostering more activism among state officials, and, and we're going to continue to see that as long as we um, don't see meaningful regulation at the federal level. Yeah, so when he says he's declaring war on the password, he means he's declaring war on the password alone, and, alone. and, and what he wants yeah. is multi-factor authentication. Well, considering that uh, just to get onto your Gmail, it's now possible to get uh, multi-factor authentication. Uh, you you would sort of think that your financial industry, your financial records would be at least as well protected. Yeah, I I think we're inevitably going to get there. A lot of banks have moved there already, but but there is still massive resistance because of the cost involved. I think and and the um, the desire to avoid uh, doing anything that's going to inconvenience bank customers. Yeah, well, of course, what. Google did was make it available. What most of these uh, f- uh, folks, Facebook, Twitter, is they make it available. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. So if you don't understand it, you can just say, I'll keep using my password. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, if, bank- if that's what um, Lossky wants banks to do, it's it's going to be hard for them to argue not to do it, that they don't have to do it. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Um, uh, let's let uh, <clears throat> we're not going to resolve this uh, uh, issue, but I do think, uh, uh, given what Wheeler has said about uh, his enthusiasm for cybersecurity, um, it's just below the surface of this Title II debate. And uh, we'll see how it evolves. We've got uh, quite a few months, probably, until it's ripe even for an appeal. We have to get published in the Federal Register. To do that, we have to get past the OMB before Production Act notice and um, wait 60 days probably after publication um, for the effectiveness of the rules. Of course, there'll be an appeal um, upon publication in the Federal Register, and we'll see how it goes from there. It's a it's, uh, fascinating uh, story uh, and uh, uh, a remarkable um, uh Victory for the Netroots and the uh, uh, and John Oliver and uh, John Stewart and a whole bunch of people who led this campaign. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're uh, giving credit where credit is due, Stewart, to the John Olivers and the John Stewarts and their followers, instead of telling uh, telling me that it was all Obama's idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I'm not sure I, I draw the distinction. Uh, but uh, speaking of uh, cybersecurity regulation, the Chinese have new cybersecurity regulation, uh, and it consists mainly of saying which American companies' products uh, they don't want uh, their critical infrastructure relying on, and they have uh, dumped a whole bunch of com- of uh, uh, products, uh, I think Apple, Cisco, Intel, uh, uh, all were listed or, or taken off the list of products that uh, uh, the Chinese government uh, wanted uh, their companies to use, McAfee. Um, and, um, uh, you know, this has happened before, Michael, uh, and uh, uh, the, there was a lot of pushback from U.S. companies and the U.S. government. Um, now, after Snowden, I'm not sure that that pushback is quite as enthusiastic or quite as likely to succeed. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the, the, the most recent uh, changes affect uh, banks uh, and or 
software and hardware that's sold to, to Chinese banks, but there's a draft terrorism law that would go even farther than that and uh, require uh, that companies that, that use or sell encryption to deposit the keys with the Chinese authorities, that they maintain the personal information of, of Chinese residents in China rather than, than holding it somewhere else and well, that's, I'm, I'm sure that's just that's just that's just for privacy purposes uh, to prevent it from being subject to lax U.S. privacy laws. Yeah, it's funny. The Chinese say it's well. The Chinese say it's for privacy purposes. They also cite security, uh, and the U.S. government's uh, pushback is saying, "No, this isn't about security. This is about uh, protectionism." And I think that's because they they know the charge of hip- hypocrisy is going to be coming at them if they say China can't do this sort of stuff for security. Reasons, so everybody's sort of mischaracterizing what's really involved here. I think. I, I Mickey Kaus has introduced me to the uh, concept of uh, things being overdetermined. Uh, this strikes me as completely overdetermined. Uh, they would do it for protectionism reasons as enthusiastically as they would do it for national security reasons, and in this case, both overlap their uh, uh, with their their goals for uh, uh, industrial policy. So uh, uh, there's there's no likelihood that they're going to stop trying to substitute Chinese products for U.S. products in the tech sector. Yeah, I think you're right, and that's a better description than, than what I said, which was, you know, I said they mischaracterized it. You're right, it's it's determined by lots of different policy goals on, on China's part, and ultimately it's going to be privacy interests that are adversely affected by the developments because it's just going to allow the Chinese to, to spy on their dissidents more uh, and also keep out U.S. companies uh, to the extent they don't want to cooperate. Although U.S. companies have tended to go along even after objecting or even after getting the U.S. government to object and, and be unsuccessful in changing much. Yeah, I think the best the best hope that U.S. companies have is that some of the Chinese products that they're trying to substitute are still kind of crappy, and so uh, uh, there'll be resistance from Chinese banks, for example, to, to these uh, uh, requirements. So uh, speaking of uh, uh, China and cybersecurity, uh, Lenovo, uh, which struggled with the disclosure that it had installed uh, um, uh, Commodia uh, 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 Superfish uh, um, uh, man-in-the-middle software, uh, has now been the subject of a class action. This is also overdetermined, I think. Uh, um, uh, Did you look at the class action? I did, and this is a nice segue from your your point that uh, Chinese banks might start to be worried about insecurity in Chinese products, and this is a, a pretty good example since the class action is based on uh, the notion that uh, you know Lenovo basically vi- violated the uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act and California's privacy laws and unfair competition law by making uh, customers data. Uh, susceptible to being spied on, essentially. And it's interesting. You can, class actions are filed almost before we can talk about these things on our Monday roundup because uh, class action lawyers are so fast at putting together these suits. They, they must have uh, potential plaintiffs, you know, class action representatives on speed dials, and then they just 
cut and paste the the claims into a, a new complaint with a new new heading. I guess that's right. You could you could make a you could uh, uh, start a business of just signing up for every new electronic service under the planet and buying every new electronic uh, piece of equipment uh, uh, so that you could be a plaintiff uh, in the event uh, that it turns out that there's a security flaw in that system. It's a good, pretty good retirement plan, I think. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, so uh, here's my suspicion, though. You know, we've had, we've looked at these class actions, and they are settling for surprisingly low amounts of money. And I think it's because it's actually hard to show that uh, all of the plaintiffs are in the same position. And, and this is going to be true too. Uh, lots of people won't even know whether they were uh, uh, the subject of an intercept. Uh, um, they won't know whether they uh, uh, whether the superfish served them ads. If they served them ads, it's not easy to show what the damage is. Uh, um, uh, other kinds of man-in-the-middle attacks, which are certainly possible, probably require that you take your computer down to uh, Starbucks and use the Wi-Fi. Um, and showing that you were intercepted there is going to be almost impossible, uh, assuming you, you even had a, a product you could have carried down there. So I wonder whether this, this, this class action is going to go anywhere. Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point. Uh, and if there's not a viable class, then it's really not worth it to the plaintiff's lawyers to bring the case to, to recover on, uh, on behalf of a few uh, people who had some identity theft or or other tangible economic harm. So one of the things that Lenovo has now done is they've announced, you know, we're not going to put crapware on our, um, uh, our our PCs anymore. We're not going to load all this garbage that that we all hate that that keeps asking us for permission to change our uh, uh, search engine uh, or uh, uh, to give us uh, products that will uh, require us to pay for them in six months. Um, I thought that was actually, you know, uh, they're obviously in a hole, but that was a surprisingly forthcoming um, uh, act. And I don't know, Shaban, Shaban's uh, uh, now in the business of advising private companies on how to respond to crises. Uh, what would you have advised Lenovo to do? In, in this particular mm-hmm. case? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that they, they have tried to be fairly forthcoming about what happened. Um, but I think that the, the issue is that the information has kind of come out in dribs and drabs and that, that ends up being really problematic in almost any situation. But certainly here where you're talking about, uh, you know, a story that already plays into a narrative that's already out there in terms of security concerns in Chinese products. I mean, we were just talking about security concerns mm-hmm. in U.S. products. It's, 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 it happens on the flip side. I mean, this is, we've, we've seen this debate, uh, this over, is the Huawei, over Huawei as well. And I think in full disclosure, we should say that we are using a Lenovo laptop in the process of doing this podcast. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think it might be a ThinkPad, which wasn't covered. It says Lenovo, right? Uh, yes, but this yes, is a Lenovo. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, the, the, the challenge with situations like this is that, um, with these security flaws and security errors, you never know the whole story at the beginning. And yet, as a company, you're required to say something. And, uh, what ends up happening oftentimes is that companies have to revise their stories. And over time, it can make you look like, you know, you, you, you didn't have full command of the situation. And so, you know, what I think, and, and this is even, this isn't specific to this case, but what I think is most 
important is to sort of be able to tell the broadest story at the outset. So at least as new stories uh, evolve or, or come to light, they can at least fit into the broad story that you told at the beginning. Uh, and and it, it becomes sort of an iterative process as opposed to kind of a constant correction process. Yeah, I, I, although at the, the dribs and drabs in this case, Turn out to be mostly about Commodio, which yes, they do, and uh, that's, offered this tool to everybody, and there's like dozens of yeah, of it's products. definitely not looking good for them, that's for sure. <laughs> right, I, uh, but the the good news for them is they probably don't have the resources to pay even the first uh, judgment, uh, and so maybe they won't get sued as that's much. That's possible. Uh, which is the the traditional Silicon Valley uh, uh, theme, right? If if I'm small enough when I'm starting out, uh, no one will sue me because I'm too small. Too small to fail. Uh, and if I if I if I get big enough to sue, uh, you know, then I'm big enough to be rich, and so I can take the lawsuit. Uh, um, so we'll see. I, I think, unfortunately, for Commodia, they got caught on the uh, too small to fail uh, uh, side of that. Uh, all right, uh, let's let's turn, if we can, to a couple of other press issues. Uh, this was a remarkable week for um, uh, learning about attribution of other attacks. Uh, uh, there was a story in which uh, uh, the DNI just kind of talking about attribution says, oh, and by the way, uh, uh, the, the Las Vegas Sands uh, uh, attack was done by Iran. Uh, there was a leak of, uh, actually, I think uh, somebody, maybe it was David Sanger, found a, uh, a document The Intercept had made public but hadn't really mined, uh, saying uh, that uh, uh, attributing the attacks on U.S. banks to Iran and also and the Saudi, Saudi Aramco attack uh, uh, to Iran, uh, um, uh, kind of a, uh, a remarkable week for attribution after going for years when nobody was attributing any of these. Yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's been really fascinating just having covered these issues for years and the notion of, even from a reporting standpoint, learning that the government had attributed it to a particular country was a big story. Um, right. and, and, but you'd never kind of see the, the proof of that, so to speak, and you'd never see public officials acknowledging it. And so, you, so you, you, there really you, has been a huge shift. I mean, you know, the, the, the story based on the, the internet or the intercept document is, is huge in just that it became public. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it's not surprising you would have government documents about attribution, but that kind of thing basically almost never becomes public. And then to see the DNI out there attributing these kinds of attacks, I mean, we did, we obviously saw it already with Sony and North Korea, but, you know, it seems like the, the U.S. government has really become a lot more comfortable with talking about these kinds of things. It's a big change. Yeah, the taboo is off because you covered a lot of these stories. You covered the uh, the bank attacks. You covered the Chinese stuff when the government was really tight-lipped about this. Very much so. And I remember actually writing a story about uh, then Defense Secretary Leon Panetta giving this huge speech in, I think it was October of 2012. It was right in the middle of the, the Iranian tax against the banks. And I, I we, we were actually in the process of reporting a story on that. So I remember seeing, I, we saw the text and speech, I think, a little bit early. And I said, oh my gosh, this is about Iran, but it never says anything about Iran. And through some sleuthing on, on my part and, and a colleague of mine at the Wall Street Journal at the time, we learned that it was essentially just a veiled slap at Iran, um, but <laughs> they couldn't 
say that. And so they, it was all this very sort of um, sing- signaling type language. They were hoping that the Iranians would pick up on the fact that Panetta knew that they were really behind it, but they couldn't say it publicly because of classification concerns and everything. And so it's just funny to see such a shift even in a year and a half about, you know, being willing to put Iran out there. The concern has, has, has been at least for a long time that if we end up in a public discussion about Iranian, uh, you know, attacks in cyberspace, uh, then you've got to deal with the fact of U.S. activities against Iran also in cyberspace and, uh, you know, sort of uh, the potential for, uh, you know, creating problems for the nuclear talks. And so there's, it's a very, it's a, highly multidimensional issue and it is so with with china too um but a different set of issues yeah and i th- i suspect that one the other reason they didn't want to attribute it is because they were afraid people would say well okay now that they've attacked us what are you going to do about it and we weren't really prepared to do something about it well but the interesting thing actually about the the new york times story that 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 you mentioned was that the doc the, the snowden documents actually show that the u.s government was acknowledging that uh iran was coming after us in in retaliation for our going after them. So it was sort of an admission, not just that Iran was coming after us, but that it was a retaliatory attempt for something we had already done. Yeah. Well, uh, that's sort of the uh, intelligence community acknowledging the obvious, but uh, it is, but, but, (laughs) but, you know, that's a, that's a victory too sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So um, anything else about all these attributions that surprises you after having covered the stories? Well, I mean, I I think it'll be interesting to see whether this is just sort of a, a mini explosion because the the kind of geopolitical situation demands it, or whether we're now going to start to see it on a more regular basis. I mean, there there was a an almost two year long effort within the Obama administration just to get to the point where they could start, um, you know, alleging that China was behind, right. just sort of a broad range of cyber attacks, not specific ones. And then we saw that shift to more specific indictments last May. And it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what what do you do with Russia, um, especially in the context of what's going on with Ukraine? What do you do with Syria in the context of what's going on in Syria? So there are um, uh, other areas of, of, of hotter conflict right now um, where cyber also comes into play. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. My memory is that the Chinese, and they, they actually uh, got their greatest exposure when they hacked the New York times uh, they but did. they also hacked the wall street journal at the same time didn't they they certainly did uh that was that was really really interesting because i remember coming into work the day after the new york times story had had um had run and uh I had been told the night before by my editor that, you know, the journal had had its own issue with this and we'd be doing a story, uh, related to that. So I came in the next day saying, okay, you know, how do I talk to the, the forensics people who, who were involved? How do I talk to our lawyers? How do I talk to whoever? And, and I was told by my editor, no, just report it like any company breach. And so I got no assistance whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> that was their way of saying we're stonewalling you. <laughs> well, but what was interesting, it was an interesting window into the way that different companies deal with this thing, these kinds of things. And the New York Times took uh, 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 certainly at what was at that time, and I think, you know, still would reflect a, uh, a very sort of forward-leaning approach in terms of putting as much information out there. And the journal was taking a much more um, conservative, and I mean that with 
a very small C, just not not wanting to to change um, the way that that companies generally approach these kinds of things. And you know, it was very very closed. And basically, I had to spend my entire day having off the record conversations with people who normally sign my paychecks. I mean, it was a very strange experience. <laughs> that must be that must be fun. And, uh, and it took until four o'clock in the afternoon to even get a half admission from the corporate communications people that 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 the journal had been hacked. And so it was just it, it was an interesting window into it because certainly you do cover these things from the outside all the time. You can spend weeks or months covering one of these things, trying to nail down details, but you're doing it inside your own company. It's a, it's, it's oh, kind of yeah. funny the way you run into similar experience. <laughs> so one of the things that, that, that I think this suggests, as you said, that we're going to see more of this. There's a, there's a certain amount of activity being reported, I think by the journal, um, I, Post Sony, sort of saying, what lessons did we learn? I thought it was a Danny uh, Yedrin uh, uh, story, mm-hmm. uh, in which the government is looking at lessons learned and saying, you know, we didn't, we weren't exactly all that on top of this uh, in ways that we should have been. Uh, and uh, I, it sounded almost as though there was pressure to create some new focal point. I, I won't say a new agency because I don't think that's what they have in mind, but that uh, there need, need to be a focal point where all of government's capabilities and understandings could be brought to bear. Um, and uh, I don't know if you saw that before you left, but that, there clearly is uh, some unhappiness with all of the players. You know, NSA has terrible public relations. The FBI is very focused on um, uh, prosecution and not, you know, doesn't have the world's greatest information sharing reputation. Uh, DHS doesn't have a reputation for strength of competence and uh, uh, grasp of all of these issues. Uh, um, a, and NSC, you know, famously uh, always has ADD on, on issues. Uh, um, if you were giving the government advice on how to handle these uh, issues in the future, how would you organize it? Well, I think it speaks to the uh, the need for communications preparedness when it comes to cybersecurity crises, yeah. <laughs> which is something that I'm now pretty familiar with. But yeah, so I, actually, I, I, I don't want I want to get to that. Uh, uh, let me just finish up on, on a couple of stories, and then oh, we'll I was, come I back. Wasn't, to that. I wasn't trying to, to no, divert I, us. But, okay. Um, you know what I what I was going to say was that I mean what it really speaks to is the 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 need to, um, and this this would apply on the U.S. government side, it would apply on a company's side uh, to think through when there are these sort of major uh, cyber incidents that will implicate a state sponsor that is, you know, of, of foreign policy or geopolitical significance, it does make sense to think about, uh, you know, who is going to be interfacing with the public, who's going to be interfacing with the company, yep. who's going to be coordinating um, within the U.S. government. Just what we know, this isn't even just message development, but it's just sort of making sure that everybody is literally on the same page in terms of, you know, what is known about the nature of the attack and why the government thinks a certain party is is responsible for it. And then also communicating effectively with the, the affected company, because otherwise you just end up with all these entities that are in theory on the same team, just working at complete cross purposes. Or, or at least not, not understanding what is important to the rest of the government when they hear it. They hear something said inside the company and they say that's interesting, but doesn't have anything to do with the investigation when it's really critically important to the White House or to the, uh, to DHS. Uh, but I'm actually kind of interested because you're really suggesting that the government has the same problem that industry has, that everybody who faces an intrusion 
has to pull together a whole bunch of different parts of the company. Uh, uh, and I, uh, I think that's something that uh, Michael has uh, helped people plan. That's what you're doing now with, uh, with folks as they plan for what emergency or crisis communications. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. That's uh, one of, one of the things that we're focusing on the most right now is actually, uh, I think there's a heightened awareness, particularly in the wake of Sony in, in a whole range of companies. I mean, it can be sort of medium sized retailers. It could be large airlines. It could be large financial institutions that uh, people are realizing that you can you can prepare for some of this ahead of time. You can try to figure out who are the channels of communication, both internally and externally, in the event of a crisis uh, around cybersecurity, because part of the challenge with cybersecurity is that the information is technical, so it helps to get a primer beforehand, and the information is very, very fragmented. So it helps to have uh, some place where you can at least piece together what you do know and what you don't know. So when you're trying to explain it either to your boss or to a customer or to a government entity or to the public, that you are explaining accurately what you know, and you're not claiming that you know more than you do. Because the thing uh, that that I think a lot of uh, companies and the government run into with cybersecurity crises is that you learn that there's a problem, but you don't really know that much about it at the outset. And so you want to make sure that when you're explaining it, you're explaining it clearly, but not with a sense of, of complete confidence about what you know, because uh, it, it is way more certain than not that the story is going to evolve over time. So, Michael, uh, you've given advice to uh, uh, to companies on crisis uh, uh, response. Uh, uh, anything in that that you would disagree with? Well, you know, not really. I, th- I think it's I think it's really important to have good coordination with between the, the lawyers who should be overseeing the response uh, for lots of different reasons including maintaining the privilege and the communications people. I think the, the communications people, since their job is to get the message out, are going to tend to want to get the message out quickly. Uh, and I think the most important thing is just to make sure that, that you've got full information or, or really enough information to be confident that what you put out there is not going to have to be changed in two days or a week or, or both. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's an inherent tension between the lawyers and the communicators on this, uh, unless you've got really sophisticated communicators and really sophisticated lawyers. Because the lawyers, you know, they're never going to get in trouble if they say nothing today uh, and wait till tomorrow. And for the communicators, that's the end of the world. Well, it could be the end of the world, but it's also just, I think it's a matter of knowing what you, what, what, what you can, can say. accurately say. And, and I don't even mean this in a, in, in a legalistic way of you're going to get in trouble if you say X, Y, and Z, but you just want to make sure that the story that you're presenting is accurate. And there is a tendency sometimes for organizations to want to say, you know, well, this is the full, this is, this is the full scope. It's not going to get any bigger than this. But the, the issue is that you get a forensics investigation that comes back a, a few weeks later and all of a sudden you learn, oh, they actually had access to this other, you know, channel of, in your network and you had no idea. You weren't misspeaking at the time that you spoke, uh, on purpose, but you were ultimately, you know, casting, uh, what, what proved to be an inaccurate scope of the, the, the damage. Um, anybody from your time in uh, journalism or now that you think uh, that was a, pu- a, a public uh, breach that you think handled this kind of thing well? I think that the New York Times' treatment of its own hack is the best explanation I have seen a company do of uh, a, a breach. 
Okay, so uh, if you buy ink by the barrel, you're in a better shape, position to do this. But yes, that's they, true. That's uh, true. I mean, they and 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 you know, but they also had months to do this, and they successfully, you know, kept the story under wraps until they were actually ready to put it out. So, you know, they things broke in their favor uh, in a lot of ways in terms of the presentation. They were lucky because if there'd been personally identifiable information in that, they, they probably would have. Yeah, but uh, apparently not, or maybe their employees don't count or they didn't come up to the to the necessary number. Uh, um, okay, um, let me see if we can pull this together. Uh, I, I wanted to, to, before we close, to... Uh, um, uh, go to user feedback, uh, uh, because I've been, uh, hounding our, uh, listeners for, uh, uh, for feedback. Uh, and, uh, I got, uh, you know, th- this is embarrassing because, uh, I got copied on a note to Nula O'Connor, who was on our show last week, uh, uh, from Michael Samway, uh, um, who's now at Georgetown University, uh, uh, who, um, says wonderful things to her about how well she handled me. Um, uh, uh, dear Nula, I happened to catch the latest Steptoe podcast this morning while riding my bike, uh, which shows the level of uh, attention that our podcast gets. Uh, uh, congrats on the superb interview. As usual, you were thoughtful and persuasive and clever to boot. I didn't, didn't do a word count, but I'm certain you managed twice the number of words Stuart did. Surely a guest first. At least measured in city blocks, pedaled. You rode circles around the esteemed Mr. Baker, who was one of our Ace outside counsel in my early Yahoo days. And while I find myself agreeing with Stuart quite often on the podcast, once you'd invoked Madam Secretary and her NSA alumnus husband, I think the listeners had little choice but to take your side on all else. Smartly done. So, uh, um, you know, this is the most effective abusive email I've, uh, that we've ever received. Uh, so Michael, uh, uh, thanks for the feedback, uh, and we do appreciate having you as a listener, but, uh, next time send me email about uh, a guest I've handled well. Thank you. Uh, and I should uh, tell all our other listeners that any of you can, um, uh, send us feedback, uh, to, Cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if you'd like to leave a message uh, by phone, try 202-862-5785. This has been episode 56 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Mike Rogers, the former House Intelligence Committee chair. Uh, and coming shortly after him, uh, Andy Osmond from the Department of Homeland Security and Richard Beitlich, uh, uh, the chief security strategist at FireEye Mandiant. Uh, We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.